Welcome to the podcast of Saltbox Church, where we are passionate about helping people engage in the love of a fiercely relational God. Oh, Lord Jesus, good morning. I'm sure somebody will turn our house lights up in here in just a minute. We are in Acts 9. I was thinking, do you know how long I have been in Acts 9 with y'all? I mean, we have been in here, and then we are finishing it today. We are going to tie up Acts 9. This is so funny. We are looking at a very unusual passage, and I'm going to do what I do a lot of times is take an unusual kind of pivot and look at it. But we are, we're actually, as we look at Acts 9, it's verse 35 where we'll start, and we're going to go through the end of the chapter, and we're going to see the Apostle Peter actually pray and life restored to someone who died by the name of Tabitha, or Dorcas, are the two names. How'd you like to be named that, Dorcas? So, but here's what I want to filter it through. I want to filter this text this morning through five ways that we can know and exercise the will of God or five ways that we can know and hear the voice of God. Okay? So here's, here's what I mean by that. And let me, let me even back up and, and tell you a little story. It's just kind of a funny thing that happened to me. But when I was, as we, as we look to this passage and as we look to what are five ways that we can know and hear God's voice, know and exercise his will. But when I was a, I was a brand new seminary student, so I was enrolling in seminary, and they make you take this test called the MMPI-2. Has anybody ever heard of that? It's like a mental health test. I think they want to make sure you're not crazy before they release you into ministry, right? So they put me through this mental health test, and they want to make sure emotionally and mentally and whatever. So there was this one question that said, I see things that other people don't. And I, I'm like in my family, like we're out on the boat. I'm always the one that sees a porpoise or like the hermit crab. I'm always, I'm always seeing things that other people don't, you know, when we're driving down the road, I see a deer. I'm like, oh, there's a deer, you know, like, you know, everybody's like, oh, yeah, or a rabbit or whatever. So I'm always seeing things other people don't, right, you know. And so anyway, I said, you know, do you see things other people don't? I'm absolutely, and I just kept on going. <laughs> so at the end of the test, uh, they came in and they said, Mr. Mattis, everything looks pretty good, but we're a little bit concerned because apparently you have a very significant thing that you see things that other people don't. I was like, they said, what exactly do you see that other people don't see? And I was like, um, like rabbit and deer, porpoise, hermit crabs. And they really, there was a whole board of people and they were like, do you see other things that other people don't? And I was like... So at the end, we, we, uh, I, I was never quite able to laugh. It was like one of these moments where I was like, oh, my God. But I got out of the room and really, really had a laugh. But what's fascinating here, and as we even think about what it means to be in a relationship with God in a New Testament sense, and when we even look at the New Testament, God is always speaking. He is always acting. He is always moving people in, in his will. And, and it, it is interesting to me in our current American society, so 2023, America, if you said to virtually anybody anywhere something about praying to God, so in other words, talking to God, their response would basically be, okay, I mean, you know, they might go, eh, I don't agree, or eh, I mean, there might be any number of little thoughts, but they would, we would all, all basically anywhere, Christian, non-Christian, okay, you're praying to God, you're talking to God, okay, that's fair, but the moment you begin to talk about God speaking to 
you suddenly you're seeing things that other people aren't. And everybody's like, but what I actually want to open today, and I'm, I'm being a little funny here this morning to sort of normalize this, but I think there's five heart postures or five ways that we can even look at in this passage where you can begin to posture your heart in such a way to begin to hear the whisper, or if in the Old Testament, it's actually the still small voice of Yahweh God. Because it's not enough just to read the scripture. It's not enough just to go to church or just to praise him. But this is actually an abiding relationship with Jesus. If you're a regular here, you hear me talk about this all the time. But this is, therefore, if we're in a deep, significant, abiding relationship with Jesus, when relationship people talk, communicate, share, right? So that's really what I want to open this morning as we finish out this chapter 9 of Acts. And I'm going to propose five things about hearing the voice of God, exercising the will of God. And then we're going to filter this little text through these five things. So number one, how do you hear the voice of God? Number one, the circumstantial leadership of the Holy Spirit. We're going to come back to these. And if you're not familiar with Holy Spirit language, the Godhead biblically is a Yahweh God. God the Son, King Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit of God. They're, they're one and yet three. That's a, an anomaly that I can't fully explain to you. Uh, so number one, the circumstantial leadership of the Holy Spirit. Number two, impressions or directions or the voice, the still small voice of the Holy Spirit of God. Number three, the Word of God. The Word of God. Number four, trusted, I love that Shannon used the word saints from last week, thank you, but trusted saints, respected saints that we know are walking intimately with him. And then fifthly, you may not understand this when I first say it, so you'll have to wait for it, but our union with Christ, our union with Christ. So we're going to talk about the circumstantial leadership of the Holy Spirit, impressions or directions or the voice of the Holy Spirit of God, passages from the Bible, number three, four, trusted saints or people in our lives, and then number five, we're going to hit our union with Christ. Okay, are we ready? All right, so I'm going to pick up reading in Acts 9, verse 35. Last week, we actually talked about the Greek for rise up, which is what Peter said to Ananias, and he's going to say that very same thing to this lady named Dorcas or Tabitha this week. I'm not going to go into that as much, but it's super powerful, so if you want to hear that, go back to last week. But verse 35, so this is right after Peter has healed Ananias. Um, All those who lived in Lydia and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. So there's like a revival in the city. Everybody's coming to Jesus is what's happening. Somebody got healed and everybody's like, oh my goodness, God is real. He is here and people are coming to Christ. Verse 36. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. Now, Tabitha, male or female? Female. And she is a disciple. Note, Note that. Female disciple. Tabitha, in Greek, her name is Dorcas. I'm reading out of the NIV this morning. She was always doing good and helping the poor. We have some people in our church like that. Verse 37, about that time she became sick and died and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydia was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, excuse me, They sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. So a few miles away, they're in this little city of Joppa. A few miles away is the city of Lydda. They heard that the apostle Peter is there, and they send for Peter. Now, we have to read it between the text here. We can't know for sure why they sent for him, but let's talk about that for just a second. 
They send for Peter. What do you think they want here? Do they want him to do the funeral? Do they want him to comfort the family? I mean, I think you have to open this up here for just a second because no one other than Jesus at this point in the New Testament has raised anybody from the dead that we know of. Nobody. So none of the disciples have done this. I mean, that really since Elijah and Elisha way back in First and Second Kings, no one has been raised from the dead since Jesus was raised from the dead. And there was three people that Jesus raised from the dead that we know of. So when they send for Peter, there is an act of something here. Could it be faith? Yeah, I think it could be. What's also really interesting is they said, let's go back, her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. I mean, they didn't bury her. You know, they washed her and put her upstairs. I mean, like, that's like us. Like, think about it. All right, verse 38, Lida was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lida, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went to them. So it's, it, this was like, I think it's like eight, maybe 18 miles, something like that. So he, he takes a trip. It's a day or two probably before he arrives. When he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. All right, so what's happening? You've got the washed body of Dorcas or Tabitha. She's probably covered. Perhaps her face is exposed or fully covered. We don't know. But Peter goes into this upstairs room, and you get this idea that there is like a memorial or funeral sort of service or procession happening at this house, upstairs and downstairs. There's lots of tears. And we're, you know, in America, we grieve like silently. Like, you know, memorial services are like somber, they're quiet, they're relatively silent. But if you go to a country like a a Palestinian country or a Middle Eastern country, have anybody been to a memorial service or a funeral there? It is big and it's loud and wailing is out and it is like open. I mean, it is a long, it is a drawn out thing. So it is not like what it is here. It's not this quiet visitation sort of thing. So Peter walks in, people are, he's taken into this upstairs room, widows are all around, and they're people that Dorcas or, or Tabitha has ministered to, and they're actually showing him all the things that I guess she sewed and made while she was still with him. Verse 40, Peter sent them all out of the room, and then he got down on his knees and prayed. Grant, can I pick on you? You're sitting right here. It's my friend Grant up here. So here's what I want you to imagine, Grant, and I want you all to imagine yourself being Grant in this situation. You're a leader at a church. Grant, you've been here since the beginning. You were actually in my living room. You're a leader in this church. You have this reputation, and then someone at another neighboring church that we love dies, and they call you to go see them, okay? And then there's this perhaps unwritten expectation that Grant does what? Let's go back to Peter here a second. What is the perhaps unsaid, unspoken expectation? Peter, please come at once. What are they saying to him? Raise her from the dead. What could Peter be feeling in this upper room? Everybody, please leave now. And then he gets down on his knees. Does he get down on his knees in dependence? Probably. But does he also get down on his knees in desperation? I've never seen anybody raise anyone from the dead except you, Lord Jesus. I've been with you on three occasions when you did it. I saw you do it. But I imagine in this moment, very much like Grant, if Grant was called to a neighboring church where somebody had passed away, there's this um, sort of unspoken expectation on him that you're going to go and you're going to raise this person up and heal them and everything's going to be okay. Is there pressure on him? 
Yes. So even Peter, I can imagine in his humanness, he's still a young man. He has seen the supernatural working of God. But I don't think for a minute that Peter just rolls in there with a cocky, cavalier attitude, assuming that God is going to show up and Dorcas is going to be raised from the dead. So what I imagine when I read this is that Peter is actually sweating bullets. He's probably scared to death. And he's like, Lord, oh my goodness, you've just appointed me to be the first pastor of the first church in Jerusalem. Pentecost is happening. Persecution is broken out. There's churches that are scattering all over the Palestinian world. And suddenly these people have called me over and expect that I raise this lady from the dead. It's like a total freak out. You know, what in the world? No wonder he told everybody to leave. So he falls down on his knees and he prays, turning toward the dead woman. I love that in scripture, and I'm also, these are things that like when I get to heaven, I can't wait to ask Peter. Can you please tell me what you prayed in that moment? I just want to know, what would you pray? Because in my world, I think I've made the assumption a lot of times over my faith journey, I came to Christ as like a four-year-old. I just assumed that as you hit 30 and 40 and 50, that you've like got everything together and your faith is perfect and you never struggle and stumble and fall. And I'm just convinced that Peter in this moment is probably having a crisis where he's like, Lord, are you real? Are you going to show up? He might even be doubting. And these people have all these expectations. And what if I have to open the door and go downstairs and tell them nothing happened? Like, that's real. Okay. So Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and he prayed. Turning towards the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. Now, that's the same rise up from last week. So it is the same words in the Greek that all the New Testament writers use to speak of God raising Jesus from the dead. So it's rise up. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that if you want more context on that particular phrase. So she op- And we're going we're gonna to come back to that because Jesus raised a little uh, guy named Jairus. He had a girl, a little girl that died, about 12 years old. And Jesus said almost exactly the same thing to her, but we're going to come back to that in a minute. So she, what did she do? Opened her eyes. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think we have to do, especially here in like American Western Christianity, is you actually have to be willing to put yourself fully into the text and begin to go, Father, could you do that now? Can you do that now? Is this something that we could experience? And begin to even have the expectation that God is God. He exists outside of time and space. And I mean, can God do this? Yes. So, so there has to be somewhat of an expectation even in, in us as readers to go, okay, this is at least within the realm of possibility. So Tabitha opens her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand, and he helped her to her feet, and then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and he presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Holy Spirit of God, I pray that as we open this text this morning, that you would sift our hearts, that you would sift our minds. And Father, I pray that you would give us very real and very practical tools to hear your still small voice, to know your will, and then to walk in it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
Okay, so I gave you my five things. Let me review them. We're going to go back through them. Circumstantial leadership. How do you hear the voice of God? How do you discern the will of God? The circumstantial leadership of the Holy Spirit. The impression or direction or the voice of the Holy Spirit. Passages from the Bible. Trusted saints. And then our union with Christ. Let's take the first one. Circumstantial leadership of the Holy Spirit. So Peter is in Lydda. In Lydda, he raises this guy named Ananias, is paralyzed. There's this whole like revival breaking out there. I can't even imagine, you know, every day Peter is like probably coming out onto the streets of Lydda and he's sharing Jesus with more people. He's preaching. There's little house church gatherings. There's probably big church gatherings and small church gatherings. People are coming to Christ. They're baptizing people. Like there's this whole movement that is happening. Christianity is brand new. And so there's this, it's, it's all just like happening right before Peter. So he's hanging out in Lydda, and then now in Joppa, some 18 miles away, Tabitha dies. Tabitha is loved and respected and honored, revered, and all of a sudden the people wash her body, put her in an upstairs, uh, upstairs, upper room, um, upstairs room, and they send for Peter. So can we initially sort of look at this and go, God circumstantially seems to have injected Peter into this situation? Yeah. He's there at the right time, at the right place. He was a few miles away. So circumstantially, is it at least possible um, that the Holy Spirit is leading Peter to do something in this situation? Yes. Now, what I want to emphasize here is as we unpack these five things, I think if, if any of us um, gets into just one of these five things, you can easily go amiss. Okay. And I want to sort of present to you this, um, a, a, this series of these five things that I think if you're willing to walk gingerly with, that you can begin to hear and discern the will and way of God in your own life and make application to the, the, the risen power of King Jesus, abiding in his will and way, hearing his voice, and then risking stepping out boldly and following him. Now, is circumstantial leadership enough if it's only by itself for you to say God is doing or God said or this is God's will? Probably not. Probably not. But should it be at least considered? I think so. Uh, one um, common uh, tater, I don't remember his name, but he said, the circumstances of our daily life are to us an infallible indication of God's will when they concur with inward promptings of the Holy Spirit of God and the word of God. You hear that? So let me say that again, because I think that's important. The circumstances of our daily life. So in other words, circumstantial leadership. The circumstances of our daily life are to us an infallible indication of God's will when they concur with inward promptings of the Holy Spirit and the word of God. Do you see how this particular commentator lists three things? Um, Circumstantial leadership, inward promptings of the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God. So when you begin to pray, Lord, what college should I go to? You're a young person. You're praying. Is, you know, the UNCW pamphlet showing up in your mailbox that same day or that afternoon enough? Maybe not. But if there's something that's highlighted from Scripture, if there's an inward prompting, might it be that the Holy Spirit of God is leading you towards UNCW? 
Yes. But do you see how you, you, a lot of times new Christians, especially new believers who get this idea that I can hear the whisper of God or the still small voice of God, they get and kind of ahead of God and immaturely can begin to sort of think God's going to speak about what socks to put on and where to go and everything they're going to do all day long. You hear what I'm saying? And it's not that he can't, so don't hear me say that. He can. He's God. and He's going to do what he wants to do, not what Michael says, right? But I think that when you begin to understand the voice of God or the direction of God or the indication of God in the context of circumstantial leadership, the direct witness of the Holy Spirit in your heart, um, and the word of God, then you're all of a sudden on much firmer ground on, man, God could really be leading me this way. Now, let me, let me pause here and just quote 1 Corinthians 13, 12. This is the great apostle Paul writing, and he says, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then, when we get to heaven, when we pass away and we're in eternity with Jesus, we will see face to face. Now, just think with me for a second here. Uh, mirrors in this day and age, would they have been nice, clear glass mirrors where you could perfectly see your reflection? No, what are we probably talking about? Probably polished metal, perhaps polished rock. So what do you get to see? Kind of a squirrely reflection, maybe, right? So what Paul is saying is, look, in this day and age, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. In other words, we, in some translations say we see through a glass dimly. When we get to heaven, we will see face to face and there won't be that dimness. So do I think you can ever know with 100% certainty that this is what God said and this is what he's going to do? I often know in retrospect, oh, look, that was God. But in the moment, I'm like, well, there's circumstantial leadership. There's leadership through the scripture. There's the testimony of what I sense or the, the indication, the still small whisper of God in my heart. Um, so this might be God. And then I'm going to take a risk. I'm going to take a risk. Somebody wrote a book called um, You Can't Walk on the Water Unless You Get Out of the Boat. That's good. Like, you got to take the risk. At some point you go, okay, I think this is, and I'm going to take a risk. So here's where I believe Peter, go back to our text here for a minute. So number one, the circumstantial leadership of the Holy Spirit. Peter has shown up. He is in an upper room. He was nearby. Circumstantially, if I'm Peter, I'm going, okay, God, the community of believers here obviously thinks you want to do something. They're praying for something. They have called me from 18 or 19 miles away. They have chosen not to bury this lady. They have left her in the upper room, but they're all mourning and crying. So I come in. There is this assumption that they want me to pray for her and probably raise her from the dead, which is terrifying because nobody that I've known has ever done this. There's a lot of pressure on me. I'm really scared and want to run away, but I'm going to tell them to clear the room anyway. So circumstantially, could could it be that God is speaking to Peter to pray and call this lady back from the dead? Yes, I think that's possible. Now, you can begin to make all your own applications in your own life. What about my job? What about who I marry? What about where I go? What about where I live? What about what church I go to? All this can begin to be applied, right, if you're willing to. What I will always caution you on is hear and obey the voice of God slowly and gingerly, not impetuously. Hear, discern, and then begin to move down um, the pathway. Church history is replete with people who claim to hear God, claim to speak for God, and they end up going off in all manner of craziness. But that shouldn't also let you throw the baby out with the bathwater. You hear me? So how does God speak? Circumstantial leadership of the Holy Spirit. Number two, 
How does God speak? Impressions or directions or the voice of the Holy Spirit of God. So let's go to our text, verse 40. Peter's there, everyone is with him. There's a big commotion, lots of tears, crying, everything is loud. Peter can't hear himself think. So he does what? Clears the room. And what's the first thing he does? Everybody leave. And what's he do? On my knees and pray. I believe with everything in me. I can't prove it scripturally. Wish I could. I can't wait to ask Peter when I get there. Peter, what did you pray with Dorcas? I know what I would have prayed. But I would guess in this moment that Peter did not approach the throne of grace with presumption or assumption or pride. I believe that Peter approached the throne of grace by the throne of grace. I mean the throne of Yahweh God, King Jesus. But I would suggest to you that he probably approached the throne of grace free from assumption and presumption and pride and arrogance and went, Father, do you want to raise up Tabitha? Do you want to send Tabitha back from eternity past, eternity present, eternity future into this reality? And if so, I will pray. One of the things that is, uh, I think, repelling to me as a, I don't know what I am, 42-year-old pastor in America, is when people operate out of a high degree of assumption or presumption and call it faith. They assume what the Almighty is going to do in any given circumstances. And I can't understand and I can't tell you and I can't explain to you why he promotes some people to eternity and why he leaves some people here. I don't know. And I can't tell you why he does miracles at certain points and at other points he does not. Because everyone in Israel that died in these couple of days was not raised to life. You hear me? So Peter is in this upper room and I'm proposing to you that he's clicking through in his own mind and in his own heart. Okay, Yahweh God. Okay, Lord Jesus. Here we are. I'm now in Joppa. You have called me here clearly. There's some circumstantial leadership that you must want to do something here in this city. The believers have called me here. There's circumstantial leadership. Now, I'm going to pause. I'm going to get on my knees and I'm going to say, Father, would you speak to me directly? Do you want me to pray for Dorcas and Tabitha and call her back from eternity past? Do you want to raise her from the dead? And and what's interesting too is even, I would say, even in today's day and age, before you jump out in assumption or presumption about God wants to, what he wants to do, stop and still yourself and quiet yourself and ask. You are not God. I am not God. You don't know what he's doing. I don't know what he's doing. And truthfully, I don't think we can even see 1% of the larger kingdom of God and the larger kingdom will and way that he is unfolding in and around us. And there's just such a small fraction we can can see. So in the humblest posture possible, it is to approach the throne of grace and say, Father, what do you want to do in this situation? Do you want me to pray and call back Dorcas? Let me just make a couple of statements here. Um, If I say the word um, legalism, do you all know what that is? Yeah? Let's define it this way. Legalism is like, um, it's it's like works righteousness. So you're going to do certain things externally and believing if I do these certain things externally, then God's going to be pleased and he'll therefore show up and he'll bless me. Okay? 
uh, Christianity is a supernatural um, transaction where you exchange your brokenness for the life of Christ in you and through you, and it's his righteousness, not yours, so there's no legalism in it at all. This is why Jesus was so angry with the Pharisees in the Gospels, because they were legalistic. But legalism claims that overt action in conforming to certain rules for explicit behavior is what makes us right and pleasing with God and therefore worthy of blessing. Does that make sense? Okay, so just let me give you a, um, an example that just happened, I don't know, it's probably eight or ten years ago. There was a movement here in the U.S., it was actually a lot of merit to the movement, but one of the things they said is everyone has to spend an hour a day with God. Good idea? Sure. Is it going to hurt any of us to spend an hour a day reading our Bible or worshiping or praying? No. But the moment you make a law or a rule or a legalistic thing, and then they took it a step further and they went, no one who can, who's going to lead or do our you know, certain things, if they don't sign this thing that they're spending an hour a day with God, then we're not going to let them um, move into upper leadership. In its heart, is anything wrong with the motive of the heart to spend an hour a day with God? No, but when you begin to set external requirements and legalistic sort of rules, it's real subtle, but all of a sudden you begin to go, God's not pleased with me unless I, you fill in the blank, and I'm therefore earning my salvation. And suddenly you take Christianity, which is the most beautiful and the only faith in the world where God comes to earth and sacrifices himself so that we can live. Every other faith is people legalistically performing and doing certain things to attain paradise. So Christianity is a full upside down kingdom from the rest of the faiths. God comes to earth, but the moment you put external constraints around it, it becomes legalistic. And all of a sudden you can believe that by doing these certain things. I'm therefore pleasing God. God's going to be pleased with me. He's going to bless me and I'm going to go to heaven. You follow me? So, so there's a risk um, in, in all of us. Now, um, am I a fan of time with God? Yes. I'm always encouraging you. Get in your one-year Bible and say, Lord, before I begin my day, would you speak to me? Like pray, worship, absolutely. Would I love it that all of us would spend an hour a day with God? Yes. But the moment you put external constraints on it, it becomes this, um, it becomes pharisaic. Is what it does. And there's this risk um, that in this assumption that if I do a certain thing or say a certain thing that God's going to be pleased with me. What I love about this moment is when Peter um, sends uh, sort of um, them out and he's trying to hear the voice of God. Uh, there is nothing he is doing to be seen or noticed. You know what I'm saying? Where is everybody? Gone. Everybody's out. The whole room's cleared. So he is in this spot, and then he gets on his knees, posture of humility, posture of I can't do it without you, and then he's going to seek God, not in a legalistic way, but God, what do you want to do? Does that make sense? <clears throat> this touches a little bit on why we have an offering box out there instead of passing a plate. Because I'd never want anyone to feel like, man, i got to give five bucks for my like, attendance today. No, you don't. The gospel's free. At some point... If you aren't giving something back to God, do you have to do a gut check and go, have I really been saved and impacted by the gospel? Yes. But you can do it secretly, online or in the box and back, not in front of people. So it's not legalistic. So it's not an external performance. It's rather an attitude of the heart. Okay, so number one, we're looking at Peter's circumstantial leadership of the Holy Spirit. Number two, we're looking at the, the impressions or the directions of the Holy Spirit. Um, 
I would just say in this moment, Peter gets down on his knees, he's praying, he is asking. I would love it if Luke would have included in here what God said back to him. But I would say God encouraged him, nudged him, that still, still small voice of God somewhere, encouraged him to what? Pray that she would be resurrected from the dead. Otherwise, he wouldn't have done it, would he? No way. <clears throat> All right, thirdly, passages from the Bible. We're going to linger here for just a minute. Number one, circumstantial leadership of the Holy Spirit. Number two, impressions or directions or the voice of the Holy Spirit of God. Number three, passages from the Bible. If I took you, you can make notes here. I'm not going to go there. But right now, Mark 5, Matthew 9, and Luke 8. Mark 5, Matthew 9, Luke 8. All three tell the story <coughs> excuse me, of Jairus' daughter, a little girl about age 12, and Jesus um, raises her from the... Very similar because she is at this house. She has died. Jairus goes um, to the house. There's this huge, so Jesus goes in with Peter, James, and John. There's a big mourning um, and, and, and funeral service sort of underway. And what does Jesus do? Anybody know? He clears the room. Everybody get out. So Peter has seen Jesus do this. So Peter already is doing what Jesus did, like practicing the way of Jesus. Number one, clear the room. So Peter immediately is aligning his behavior and his action with Scripture. Now, the Gospels weren't written then. He got to live in the Gospels. That's a whole other thing we can talk about. But he is aligning his behavior with the scriptural truth of Jesus. Now, the other thing I want to point out here, and I'm actually going to flip over to Mark 9. You can flip if you want. Mark 9, 41. I want to read that. <clears throat> Mark 9, 41. This is what it says. Uh, Jesus, he took her by the hand and said to her, this is the little girl who's dead, um, Tal Itha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. And what did she do? She got up. Okay, so let me say that again. He said to her, um, Talitha kum. Now, what's fascinating is when you look, assuming that Peter spoke Aramaic to um, Dorcas or um, Tabitha here, then, then exactly what Peter would have said to her was one word different. It's amazing to me. He would have said, Tabitha kum. Tabitha kum. Jesus said, Talitha, which means little girl. Talitha kum. Now, do I think that's of huge significance? Maybe not, but here's what is of significance. Is Peter um, moving in the same way, form, and fashion of his Jesus? Yes. Is, in that sense, his life fully surrendered, his ministry fully surrendered? Is he doing his best to um, apply to the kingdom principles that his Jesus led him in? Yes. So what is fascinating is this one-letter difference. He even says to this dead Tabitha the same thing that Jesus said to this dead little girl, uh, get up, arise. And when he did that, he is also calling upon that rise up is the same Greek word um, that when Jesus resurrected from the grave. So he's calling on the eternal power of a risen King Jesus to come, and he is using that power in some ways to speak to her and call her to Arise. Now, what I love here is he doesn't do it of his own accord. 
You see what I'm saying? He's not a head of God. He is not um, like, this isn't like a genie God or like an eight magic eight ball God. He is not like presuming or assuming. He comes in, he clears the room like Jesus did. He prays, he seeks God. He's going, okay, there's circumstantial leadership. Um, there's an impression that I believe Peter would have had that God would have said or he would have heard God's voice to pray in this regard. Then he is thirdly aligning up his behavior or his prayer with scripture. The other thing that happened is Jesus raised up Lazarus. <clears throat> Excuse me, look that up, you can read it. He also raised up the son of a widow um, called the widow of Nain or the other resurrections um, that we know of. Now, the other thing that Peter is doing here is Peter would have known what we call the Old Testament, right? And there's two passages in the Old Testament, I'm not going to go there, but 2 Kings 4 and 1 Kings 17. In 2 Kings 4, Elisha raises, he's an Old Testament prophet, he raises a little boy who is dead to life. And then in 2 Kings, uh, or 1 Kings 17, you have Elijah who raises a little person, uh, also a boy, to life. And interesting, one of them was in an upper room and both of them cleared the room. So you have Peter here who is aligning his behavior as he is tiptoeing down the path. God, I think you're leading me circumstantially. God, I've gotten down on my knees and prayed and I believe you've called me to pray for this um, Tabitha to be resurrected to life. God, I am aligning my now behavior with what I saw Jesus do. I'm aligning my language with the very language Jesus used. I'm aligning my behavior and language with what I know that Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament did. So I am, is he in that sense in the full scriptural bounds of his authority? So do you, do, what I want you to actually begin to see and get, and you have to excuse me, I have a tickle in my throat this morning. <clears throat> But what I want you to see and get and understand is we tend to think of like Peter or the early apostles as these like superstars of faith who have it all together. And they're not human like us with doubts and fears and anxieties and all this stuff, right? But really, I believe what's happening here is Peter is going through a very similar set of um, circumstances or directives where he is tiptoeing down the way of perhaps God wants to raise this lady to life. And he is um, with great sort of probably both trepidation but also intentionality moving through this. So is, um, <clears throat> is Peter in accordance at this point with Scripture? Yeah. So could you use that point in your own life? Yes. You can actually look through. You're getting ready to make a big decision. God, is this you? Is my decision in accordance with Scripture? Look. Seek. One of the things that I love to do with people who come to me and go, I, I know I've heard God. This is what he said. I'm like, great. Find something in scripture that supports it. And then oftentimes I love to go now flip it and find something in scripture that would actually discourage it. And now ask if it's him. Two thoughts before we go to my fourth point. There, I'd, I'd issue a general warning about proof texting. Um, proof texting means that I have something I want to do. <clears throat> I go home and I say, you know, I don't know. Babe, I want to buy a new red Corvette. If you have a red Corvette, don't worry. I don't mean to pick on you. I want to go buy a new red Corvette. So I find where, you know, Philip ministers to the Ethiopian in the chariot, and I'm like, see, he's got a chariot. <laughs> I need a 
Red Corvette. That, that's like proof texting. So proof texting means I have an agenda and I go to the Bible and I flip around until I find a passage that sort of works and then I'm going to proof text and I'm going to say, see, this supports my agenda, therefore it's God. And the moment somebody drops the God said card, it's like the ultimate trump card. There's nothing else you can play against it. God said, well, if the creator of the universe said, then you better do it. So I am much more a fan of, I think God could be saying, he may be leading me, perhaps he's indicating, just like a humble posture where you see Peter on his knees. That's the attitude in which we're called to follow God. And I would also issue a warning, not just on proof texting, but when you see someone who is arrogant and presumptuously following God without a humble heart posture, check it. Check it. Because when people get arrogant and ahead of the creator God, they often fall. <clears throat> this is great for married couples. This is great for kids. This is great for don't proof text scripture. There's, there's wild things in this book. You can get it to support about anything you want if you proof text. And the opposite of proof texting means taking the whole of scripture from Genesis to Revelation and looking at the whole of the gospel, understanding it, and making a decision in it and through it. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, the other warning that I would just say is taking things out of context. In other words, um, you know, I want to go to a, I want to move to a different city and I just flip open my Bible randomly and go, oh, look, there's Joppa and a disciple named Tabitha and Peter went to a different city. Therefore, I'm supposed to go to a different city. So again, it's just like be careful in how you use the word of God. Does God want to speak to you as a believer in a still small voice? Yes. Are there some guidelines with which you can do that with great wisdom so that you don't do something foolish? Yes. Is it possible that you'll miss God at points? Yes. Is there grace for it when you do? Yes. Okay, so we've looked at the circumstantial leadership of the Spirit. We've looked at impressions or the voice of the Holy Spirit. We've looked at passages from the Bible. Number four, trusted, how do I hear God? Trusted and respected saints. Older, wiser, more experienced, more intimately connected to the person of Jesus. And so the saints in Joppa, what did they do? They called Peter and said, Come pray for her. So there's already a testimony <clears throat> of these older, respected saints. So uh, this is probably the way I would think of it is there's an internal and an external witness, if you will. So the external witness to Peter on this particular day is the saints in Joppa called for him and have asked him to pray. Raise this lady up. Now, there has to be an internal witness in the person of Peter that God has called him to pray and that God wants to raise this lady from the dead. Does that make sense? So, you know, here is where I would say a lot of young Christians also get into trouble because they go, God said, this is what I'm doing, and then they just run off and go do it. And I always want to go, hey, time out. Pause. Still yourself. Go find two or three people that you trust that aren't just yes people that aren't just your buddies or your, you know, whatevers, and actually sit with them and go, is this God? Do you think it's God? And test it. And when someone is willing to have that type of humble heart posture, I believe that all of heaven will conspire with them to get them in God's will and way. So 
So I would suggest to you that as Peter is sitting there on his knees on this particular day, he is probably going, Lord, do you want me to pray and have her? Are you going to raise this lady Tabitha from the dead? There is an external witness. He would have used different language, but nonetheless, there is an external witness because the saints here in Joppa have called me. They obviously believe that you want to do something supernatural. Is there an internal witness now inside of me? Does that make sense? And then the fifth thing, which is probably the most complex, and I don't know that I can fully do it justice, but it's our union with Christ. There is an unusual, supernatural, there is a thing where we are married, those of us in Christ, we're married, we're wed to the person of Jesus. So up till this point, I've been kind of dealing with the word of God as it comes on us, in us, or through us. Does that make sense? But I want to shift here for just a second and talk about the, the, the progress um, of the redemptive work in us, in any one of us, in our Jesus journey is, a, is, a, is personal transformation. Um, it takes more time, but as you, as you learn to sort of abide in the person of Jesus or um, embrace this union you have with Jesus, um, so you have this, um, there's a progression that a guy, Dallas Willard, that I like would say, but he would say there's a progression of God's redemptive work in the life of a believer and communication which is like speaking, communication advances into communion. What is communion? Deep abiding togetherness, understanding, and communion advances into our union with Christ. Um, you can see this in the life of just take two young people who are dating and they're heading towards marriage. When they start, they're in communion. They're communicating. They're talking. They don't know each other very well. But as they progress towards um, marriage and as they get to know each other, that um, communion um, or, or that communication um, advances into communion. So now they're sort of doing life together with one another, let's say, when they're married. After they've been married a number of years, they stop using the word I and me, and they start to use the word we, us. And, and so there's this union, there's this knowing. So like Abby, my wife doesn't even have to be here, and I can usually have an idea of what she's going to think. There's a unity with her, and she and I tend to respond to situations like nine out of ten times we respond almost the same way because we have walked with God and we've walked with each other so long that um, communication has gone into communion and communion has now gone into union and she and I are one. Does that make sense? So there's a oneness that I would call or even speak to us as a church and say, as you're in your Jesus journey, as you're in your one-year Bible, as you're in your five-year journal, as you're praying, as you're worshiping, as you're gathering with small groups, as you're showing up on Sunday, you're progressing from simply communing um, into more of a union with God where you're abiding with him. And I would suggest to you on this day where it says when Peter got down on his knees and prayed that he is actually saying in this moment he is still himself. He is silencing, silencing the multitude of anxious thoughts within him. He is stilling his heart. He has sent everybody out. There are no distractions. And he is sitting in this, in his, this union he has with Christ. And he is saying, God, is this your will and way? And I would suggest to you, in that quietness of the moment, the Holy Spirit of God said, yes, proceed. And so in his humility of heart and humble heart posture, before he steps out in arrogance or presumption, he goes through these five things I'm proposing to you. This is Michael reading in and through the text. 
But then he says, Tabitha, get up. And she opens her eyes. The last thing that Jesus said to his disciples is the last prayer that he prayed before he went to the cross in John 17. He said, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. That's union. I and them and you and me so that they may be brought into complete unity. Then the world will know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. I'd say to you this morning, church, that when these five things align in our lives, you can be roughly sure. Notice that. Can you be certain? Not always. But you can be roughly sure that the direction in which they point is the one that God intends for you. How do you follow the voice of God? How do you follow the will of God? You follow the circumstantial leadership of the Holy Spirit. You follow the directions, the impressions, the voice of the Holy Spirit. You take the entirety of the Bible and subject your life and situation to it. You seek out some trusted, wiser, older in the faith saints. And then you rely on your union with Christ. And then you step out and take the risk. Life will never be free of risk. Faith will never be free of risk, but God will never leave you or forsake you in the risk. Amen. I believe God has called us to build a church that is increasingly learning to be progressively more deeply acquainted with his person and presence. And one of my calls as a pastor, Abby and my call, is to help facilitate a group on an intimate journey of learning to abide in his presence, hearing his voice, walking in his will and way. So let's stand. We're going to pray this one out. Prayer team, if you'll come down here. If you need special prayer, we would love to have you come. As we're worshiping here with this closing song, there's a big space here. If you want to come down and worship, I'd encourage you to do that. God is real. He is here. And he is speaking. Let's worship him. Father, I pray of our church family this afternoon that for the people that need to hear your still small voice, that they'd hear it. Father, I pray that you would encourage some people who've never believed that they could hear you, that you would be interested in speaking to them. Father, would you transform the way they think and believe about you into them being able to see you as a God of love who wants to lead graciously, who wants to speak. Father, I pray for people that need that special revelation that you would give it. Lord, I pray that you would make us into a body of believers who is committed to becoming progressively more deeply and intimately acquainted with your person and with your presence, abiding in your word, living under your holy overshadowing, knowing your voice, following you, obeying, for you, obeying you, more consistently becoming totally surrendered to your lordship will and way. Father, I pray that you would bless this church family, that you'd cause your face to shine upon them. And as they go from this place today, Lord, I pray that they would encounter your presence, your will, and your way, and they would sense your very face shining upon them, leading them as they go. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. As you go today, know he is with you, leading you if you're with him. Come up for special prayer. If you've never given your life to Jesus, we're going to be right down here. We'd love to pray with you and lead you in that journey. Amen and amen.
Thank you for listening to this podcast of Saltbox Church. If this content was helpful to you, please like it, rate it, review it, and share it on social media, as that is helpful to us. We believe when a person grows in their own Jesus journey, everyone around them benefits and gets better.